0: All right. Hi, everyone. I'm Nicole Peterson, and I'd like to thank you for joining us for our SMA StratCom Academic Alliance Speaker Session entitled Protections Price, Reassuring and Burden Sharing in U.S. Alliances. I'd also like to thank today's speaker, Dr. Brian Blankenship, for taking the time to present today. Uh, so before we begin, a few quick housekeeping items. Oh, there we go. We'll go ahead and have a virtual Q&A session at the conclusion of the brief. So during the brief or during the Q&A, feel free to submit your questions via the live event Q&A chat. It's a chat icon and it has two overlapping speech bubbles. One has a question mark. Also be sure to type in your name and affiliation before your question, or if you'd like for your name to not be recorded, go ahead and submit your question anonymously. You can also vote on which questions you'd like to be addressed most by hitting the like button next to that question. My key isn't working right now. Um, But I'm going to go ahead and introduce today's speaker. Dr. Brian Blankenship is an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Miami and a Stanton Nuclear Security Fellow at the Council of Foreign Relations. He's also a new member of STRATCOM's Academic Alliance, and his research focuses on the politics of military alliances and foreign basing. Uh, He is also working on a book project that studies the conditions under which the U.S. encourages allies to assume more responsibility for their own defense and the conditions under which it's successful in doing so. Uh, so Dr. Belichenship, I'll turn the floor to you now.
1: All right, well, uh, thank you so much for that. Um, so let me just see if I can uh, share my screen here. Okay, is uh, is it visible? Yes. Okay, perfect. Uh, so. Thanks everyone so much for coming. Uh, I'm really looking forward to uh, to today's discussion. Uh, this is uh, still uh, very much a work in project, uh, a work in um, in progress. So, uh, so any any and all feedback is really quite welcome and, and will be quite helpful for me. Uh, so today I'm, I'm presenting some of my research, which looks at the conditions under which the United States is more or less likely to be successful in persuading its allies to uh, assume more responsibility for their own defense. Uh, and so really the, the, the kind of the, the lodestar, this sort of guiding question for, for this research is in trying to explain why is the US successful in some cases uh, in, uh, in encouraging allies to assume more responsibility uh, for their own defense, but less successful in in other cases. And really the, the motivation for this for this project is twofold. So on the one hand, concerns about burden sharing in US alliances are, are really as old as the alliances themselves. Uh, virtually every president has made had made it clear that encouraging Allied burden sharing is uh, is an important priority. Um, and you know, uh, a notable recent example, of course, is uh, is President Trump, uh, who has really made uh, encouraging allied burden sharing a, a core tenet uh, of, of his foreign policy, both as president and and on the campaign trail. Uh, but you can see it as 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 far back, at least as far back as uh, presidents like John F. Kennedy, who who really. Uh, Made, uh, was really quite exasperated at uh, at what he perceived as uh, insufficient burden sharing on the parts of of U.S. allies, particularly in in NATO, and, and frequently uh, levied the threat of troop withdrawals as a mean to to try and uh, encourage allies to to assume more responsibility for their for their for their, uh, for their own defense. On the other hand, however, these efforts have had varying levels of success. Um, so, in in some cases, the U.S. policymakers have 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 been able to successfully uh, encourage U.S. allies to uh, to spend more on defense, for example. So, um, in the late 1970s, uh, Jimmy Carter was able to uh, leverage the possibility of U.S. troop withdrawals uh, to I encourage the South Koreans to to, to really dramatically ramp up their their own defense spending to to around 6% of, of course, national product. Um, By contrast, in other cases, uh, U.S. pressure has been less successful. So um, a number of U.S. presidents during the 1960s and early 1970s, for example, uh, tried to pressure Great Britain into... Uh, maintaining uh, I- its military presence uh, in, in what was called East of Suez, so in uh, in in Middle East, in the in the Middle East and and in Asia, uh, but ultimately were unsuccessful in doing so, and and British retrenchment uh, proceeded uh, at a rate that was much faster than, than what U.S. policymakers would have would have preferred. Um, and the conventional wisdom uh, in the academic literature on burden sharing suggests that. Burden sharing is quite difficult uh, or should be quite difficult in U.S. alliances, uh, as it will be in, in almost all asymmetric alliances uh, between great powers like the United States and and smaller allies. And this is the case for, for, for a number of reasons. Um, the first explanation that's been offered is that smaller allies just really can't make that much of a difference in terms of their contributions. Uh, th- this was the argument famously put forward by folks like, like Olson and Zechhauser, uh, who argued that uh, essentially when you have these sorts of asymmetric alliances, the larger countries in the alliance will inevitably share a disproportionate amount of the burden because it's ultimately their contributions that matter, whereas the smaller states will, uh, will, will tend to uh, free ride because they, uh, they just don't have much to contribute. Uh, another explanation is that Essentially the, the nature of asymmetric alliances is such that uh, inequitable burden sharing is, is built into the alliance, that it's part of the, part of the initial bargain of the alliance, that uh, essentially the, the great power provides protection and in return it gets other benefits, uh, in, including uh, basing access, uh, including uh, broader support for its foreign policy, um, uh, support on issues of trade with third parties. Support on issues of, um, uh, of of how to how to deal with third party adversaries, and that uh, and that essentially inequitable burden sharing is 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 a feature and not a bug of these alliances. Uh, and a final basket of explanations is that. Essentially, what what really makes burden sharing difficult in in U.S. alliances is the global nature of the U.S. Uh, military presence. And uh, the idea here is that by stationing so many troops abroad, for example, uh, and, and and by having uh, so much military power in general, uh, that the United States really removes any incentive that its allies have to to contribute to the to the common defense. Uh, there are some problems with uh, with what one might term the conventional, this sort of conventional wisdom, and uh, these problems are both empirical and theoretical, and so in, empirically, there are a lot of cases that don't really seem to square with uh, with what this conventional wisdom might predict. Um, so France, for example, was among the largest members of NATO, um, and, and can continues to be for, to this day, but uh, nevertheless, withdrew from NATO's integrated military command in 1966. Uh, likewise, Germany, uh, at least since the end of the Cold War, has been um, has not been among NATO's um, uh, 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 top spenders on on defense, and in fact has been uh, has been uh, at best around the middle. Um, by contrast, a lot of smaller allies, uh, including in, in recent years uh, the Baltic states, uh, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and as well as Poland uh, have, by contrast, uh, put, really punched above their weight, both in terms of defense spending, but also in terms of uh, contributing troops to, to Iraq. Um, and during the Cold War, South Korea what was, was similarly uh, a, a major contributor to the Vietnam War. Uh, and more broadly, burden-sharing often tends to rise and fall over time in ways that existing literature can't really account for. Uh, there was, for example, a, a pretty substantial rise in burden-sharing during much of the 1970s, the period of detente. Uh, but there was, uh, you know, something of a plateau in much of the, the early 1980s in the, in the period of the, the so-called Second Cold War. And just theoretically, um, there are reasons to, to think that the U.S. might actually have uh, quite a bit of leverage in, in encouraging its allies to uh, to increase their, their burden-sharing efforts. Um, and the first and, and most basic is is just that the fact that, that its allies are weaker means that most of them, uh, though uh, by no means all of them uh, to the same degree, are going to be somewhat dependent on its protection. And, and that provides it with some leverage that it can use to uh, to encourage them to, to assume more responsibility for their own defense. Um, and the second point is that it's not necessarily clear that the presence of US troops should always be a, should always have a suppressing effect on allied burden sharing because, uh, Troop deployments and other forms of assurances aren't deployed randomly, right? They're, they're often uh, deployed in, uh, in in areas that where they're most needed, right? So, uh, oftentimes these are allies on the front lines, so to speak, uh, of um, of being near shared adversaries. These are sometimes allies that are somewhat nervous about U.S. commitment and need reassuring in the first place, uh, and so there's reason to think that. The allies that actually receive more assurances uh, may be actually more susceptible to, to US pressure uh, in, in the first place because they're the ones that need assurances. So in uh, in this project, I, I really treat burden sharing as the outcome of, of a bargaining process between the United States and, and, and its allies. And the The sort of starting point and sort of uh, root assumption of uh, of the argument I make uh, is is rooted in in a lot of the existing literature on bargaining and military alliances, which suggests that uh, typically burden sharing in alliances tends to stem from uh, fear of abandonment. and so the the sort of basic argument I make is that, the more allies believe that the United States has a a credible threat of abandonment uh, and the more they actually need its protection, uh, the more susceptible they're going to be to to, to US pressure. Uh, And so, you know, this naturally raises a question, well, when is the US threat of abandonment credible? Uh, And in particular, I I focus on on a few factors, a few conditions that, that really enhance the US threat of abandonment. Um, and the first is when there is pressure uh, from within the United States to retrench from foreign commitments. Uh, so in particular, when US policymakers face a lot of domestic pressure for, uh, for withdrawing troops from abroad, for uh, uh, cutting defense spending and, and reducing military readiness, Uh, and more broadly uh, pressure to avoid foreign entanglements and foreign conflicts, uh, this is likely to make allies nervous that they might be uh, left more on their own if if they're attacked. And so, you know, one sort of working hypothesis I have in this project is that the more pressure uh, U.S. policymakers face to retrench, uh, the more successful they're likely to be in encouraging allied burden sharing. The the second condition is uh, is is when allies are less strategically valuable to the United States, and the the logic here is fairly straightforward, and and is basically that the less easily the, the United States can can afford to see an ally leave the alliance or uh, or be conquered, uh, the less likely that ally is to. Um, uh, to believe that the United States would actually abandon it or, uh, or withhold protection. And so the less susceptible they will be to, to US uh, persuasion attempts. And so, and so what do we mean by strategic value? And in particular, I, I focus on sort of two components, uh, two factors that make allies more or less strategically valuable uh, to the United States. And the first of these is the US perception of threat and so uh, basically the the idea here is that to the extent the United States faces and uh, and fears a uh, an external threat from uh, from a from a a, a great power adversary um, the less likely the u s is to abandon its allies or or to or to even appear likely to abandon its allies because doing so could have the effect of Essentially, encouraging its adversary to, to expand, and so the, the logic here is that the more threat the U.S. perceives, the more likely it is it, uh, it's going to it's going to, to want partners uh, to uh, to form a coalition against against that against that adversary. And uh, the second related component of strategic value is uh, where allies are positioned, right? So their 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 geostrategic positioning. Um, Now, some allies are more strategically positioned than others to allow the United States to project power, um, while at the same time denying adversaries the ability to do the same. Uh, And so, in particular here, uh, I focus on uh, proximity to U.S. adversaries, right? So, the the idea here is that the closer you are to U.S. adversary, the more strategically valuable you are because… Uh, you essentially form a uh, a bulwark against that adversary's expansion uh, and and a useful uh, departure point uh, from which the us can can project power uh, and by similar logic I would expect allies located near key key maritime choke points uh, uh, located around US adversaries to be regarded as strategically valuable. Um, so uh a good example of this would be something like like the Bosporus uh Strait uh in Turkey, which uh has long been regarded by, by Russia, formerly the Soviet Union, uh as sort of a uh, a key waterway that they would need to project power into into the Mediterranean and and more widely uh from uh from the Black Sea fleet. Um and so the the, the second part of the argument is that it's not only that, that U.S. pressure is not only more successful when allies believe that it would abandon them uh, or believe that it, it might abandon them, uh, but it's also more likely to be successful when allies are more dependent on U.S. protection. And so here, the the key the key driving factor I focus on is allies' own perception of external threat. So. Uh, you know, the logic here is straightforward. The, the more allies fear for their survival, uh, the more reluctant they're likely to be to, uh, to really go without US protection. And, and so as a result, the US has uh, more leverage in, in dealing with, with allies that, that perceive a, a higher level of, uh, of external threat. Now, um, you might've noticed that there's something of a tension here. Uh, and that tension is the tension between US and allies perception of threat. So uh, these two factors point in different directions, right? So uh, if you have uh, a shared adversary uh, that, that allies and the US both fear, it's not entirely clear what effect this should have on burden sharing because these effects might, might cancel out. So on the one hand, Uh, to the extent that the u.s perceives uh, a higher level of threat this likely undercuts its leverage for uh for burden sharing on the other hand though um allies own perception of threat increases u.s leverage for for burden sharing and so to be able to really explain variation in the success of u.s pressure uh there needs to be some way of distinguishing these two factors so u.s and ally threat perceptions and really Adversary capabilities and behavior can't do it uh, because these are observable to both the U.S. and to the ally. Um, and so as a result, um, I, I focus on variation ally geographic position to try and explain their, their, their level of burden sharing. Uh, and so the idea here is that. Um, the allies closer to U.S. adversaries are 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 are, are more vulnerable to, to to being abandoned. They're also more valuable, though, right? So so uh, every kilometer that an ally is closer to U.S. adversary makes them both more vulnerable and more valuable. Uh, and so, really parsing out the net effect of all of this uh, re- requires uh, requires uh, uh, coming up with uh, with a set of factors that that make allies more valuable or more vulnerable without without doing the inverse. And so, here in particular, uh, what I argue is that allies that share a land border with shared adversaries tend to be uh, the the most susceptible to U.S. burden sharing pressure uh, because although they are more valuable by virtue of being very close to, to the shared adversary, which, uh, which makes them valuable for containing an adversary's expansion uh, and also for projecting power from the U.S.'s perspective, uh, they're also uniquely vulnerable to attack. So that you know, uh, projecting power over, uh, over land tends to be uh, uh, projecting power into a neighboring country via land tends to be uh, much easier than than doing some sort of amphibious invasion over uh, even over a, a relatively small channel, and so the the expectation I have is that uh, proximity to to shared adversaries on on net uh, isn't likely to have much effect on allied burden sharing, unless they're contiguous to the shared adversary by land, and so if you are an ally like say West Germany during the during the Cold War or south korea uh you are uniquely vulnerable to attack by virtue of sharing a uh sharing a land border uh with uh w- with the shared adversary and so you're likely to be more susceptible to, to to us pressure uh and so i uh i i test these claims using both quantitative and qualitative evidence uh drawn from u.s alliances and uh on the quantitative side i uh, use, a, use a sample of of all allies that have defense pacts with the United States uh, between 1950 and 2010. Uh, and here, I'm um, my main outcome variable is allies' military spending as a as a percentage in uh, of GDP. And I look both at change over time and also just at at, at base levels. Um, and so here, I'm I'm interested in understanding the effect of both uh, of U.S. domestic pressure uh which i uh, measure using pieces of congressional legislation so uh amendments bills resolutions uh that call for uh call for uh, retrenchment from uh, from u.s foreign commitments uh and i also look at uh allies geographic vulnerability uh which which i measure using whether or not they have a shared land border with a shared adversary Uh, and i also measure allies geostrategic position by looking at whether or not they're close to uh to maritime choke points located uh, around uh u.s adversaries uh so examples include uh as i mentioned earlier the the bosporus bosporus strait in turkey uh the the first island chain uh surrounding uh surrounding china um, the Danish Straits uh, around Denmark, and there are a handful of others as well that I'm, I'm happy, to, happy to discuss. Um, in the analysis, I also look at whether U.S. troops, uh, whether the presence of U.S. troops affects allies' burden-sharing level. And uh, the conventional wisdom would suggest that they do, but, um, but as I alluded to earlier, I think there's reason to expect that they, that they might not. Uh, and so I'll I'll run through the results um, uh, fairly uh, fairly quickly since since I know we're we're somewhat tight on time. Um, basically, the the findings tend uh, really tend to support uh, the the hypotheses that, that that I had going in. Uh, so there's there's evidence, for example, that allies tend to uh, increase their the, their military spending when the United States faces domestic pressure from from Congress. Uh, Likewise, there's evidence that uh, that U.S. Uh, ad- the U.S. allies that are contiguous to a shared adversary by land tend to spend more on defense, uh, roughly uh, almost almost a percentage point more uh, on average, uh, while those close to a maritime choke point tend to spend less, about 0.75 uh, percent of GDP less uh, on average, while uh, those that are only contiguous to a shared adversary by land uh, by sea rather. Uh, really don't spend any more or any less than those that 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 are further away Uh, and the final finding from the quantitative evidence is that u.s troop levels uh really don't have a clear effect on allied uh, allied military spending the effects are, are really quite small but they're also uh not statistically significant from uh from from zero uh and the the explanation that that, that i have for this is is what i alluded to in the in the first part of the talk which is that these things aren't deployed randomly and that the the areas in which they're uh they're deployed often tend to be tend to overlap with the areas in which they're uh they're most needed and and thus the allies that are most likely to be um successful burden sharing candidates I also, uh, I'll run through this uh, fairly quickly, but I'm happy to come back to it in, in the Q&A. I also look at a variety of qualitative evidence um, from from a number of of uh, cases of U.S. alliances during the, the Cold War in particular, uh, and one of these is West Germany. Um, and so here, the the expectation going in would be that West Germany would tend to be Quite susceptible to to U.S. burden-sharing pressure uh, by virtue of its being directly on the border uh, with, uh, with with the Warsaw Pact, um, and indeed, this is this is what we see. So, uh, throughout the 1960s, which is the, the period that I, I look mostly at, but but uh, also more generally, uh, U.S. officials were often quite successful in persuading the West Germans to uh, to really assume a fair degree of responsibility for their own defense. Um, and in the 1960s, the the main avenue by which this was pursued was through what were, what were known as offset agreements. Uh, and basically the, um, the, the, the logic here was that the United States uh, incurred quite a bit of foreign exchange costs by virtue of its reliance on the gold standard uh, uh, because it had Ah uh, so many troops in uh, in Germany. and so in an effort to to offset uh, its uh, its its trade deficit, uh, it essentially put pressure on the West Germans to offset these costs by purchasing uh, large volumes of, of u s military equipment um, on, on the order uh, of of about a billion uh, every couple of years or so and 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 these agreements were often quite acrimonious. Um, uh, U.S. U.S. policymakers were often uh, quite uh, quite blunt in uh, in their use of uh, threats of troop withdrawals as a means uh, of securing these uh, these offset agreements, um, but they also provided quite a bit of assurances. Right, so uh, U.S. pressure wasn't just the use of threats, but it was also the use of assurances, uh, and and these assurances often took the form of if you provide this offset, uh, we'll. You know troop troop levels won't really change, but if you don't, there's no guarantee uh, and this pressure only became more intense uh, over the course of the 1960s and then into the early 1970s uh, as a result of increasing congressional pressure for for troop withdrawals um, so uh, largely as uh, largely though not entirely uh, as a result of of the Vietnam War. Uh, Congress was, was becoming uh, quite um, quite impatient uh, on the subject of, uh, of burden sharing in, in NATO and also more broadly. Um, and during the late 1960s and early 1970s, you really saw quite a bit of pressure from Congress uh, for troop withdrawals uh, from from Europe, um, uh, led most notably by Senate Majority Leader Mike Mansfield. Uh, but others, uh, but, but other pieces of legislation were uh, were put forward as well. Uh, the jackson nunn Amendment in 1973, for example, uh, really required offset uh, as a condition for for U.S. troop levels in Europe, um, and and this provided U.S. officials with with a lot of leverage uh, on issues of uh, of burden sharing, uh, and as a result, uh, the United States was able to secure quite a bit of offset uh, in the early 1970s. Um, and in uh, Western military spending, uh, nearly doubled between 1970 and 1975. I look at a few other cases as well, but I, I, I know I'm short on time, so I won't I won't run through those. But I'm happy to happy to come back to them in the Q and A. Um, and so uh, before before I end, I want to talk about uh, a few kind of major takeaways from 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 the research I've done. And the first and most basic of these is that. The United States is far from helpless uh, in encouraging uh, allied burden sharing. Uh, really, in, in a lot of historical cases, uh, Washington has been able to, to successfully encourage ally, uh, allied burden sharing. Um, and typically, it's done so through a combination of threats and assurances, right? And it typically, uh, typically both uh, bo- both are required, as, as I'll talk about uh, in a couple of slides. Um, that being said u.s the ability of the u.s to secure greater burden sharing is is not limitless um, for example uh, it's it's relatively uncommon for there to be periods of domestic pressure that are really really intense uh, in in, ter- in terms of favoring retrenchment um, and yeah, really the, the period of the late 1960s, early 1970s was uh, w- was somewhat unique. Um, it, it not unique in in, uh, in general, but unique in its intensity. Um, moreover, these, ten- these periods tend to also come with downsides. So um, the fear of abandonment not only makes allies susceptible uh, to US pressure, but also is likely to lead them to consider other options. Uh, and this can include nuclear weapons, uh, can also include trying to seek out closer alignment with third parties. Um, it's no accident, for example, that, that South Korea and, and uh, Taiwan both pursued nuclear weapons in the 1970s uh, as a result of doubts about U.S. Uh, US commitment. Um, and more broadly, the number of allies that really have severely high perceptions of threat so as to make them really quite vulnerable to us persuasion are 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 limited in number um typically uh you know the the number of allies that are that really really fear for their survival uh tend not to tend not to be all allies and so you're likely to see variation in who's susceptible and who's not uh second general implication is that reassurance and burden-sharing shouldn't be seen as as opposite poles, uh, because in a lot of cases, the, the same allies that need assurances of support are also those that are most susceptible to U.S. pressure. Uh, West Germany uh, provides a, a, a pretty solid example of this. Uh, West Germany was uh, by far and away the, the largest host of, of U.S. Uh, peacetime forces uh, since 1950. Uh, But the U.S. was also able, in a number of cases, to successfully pressure the the West Germans to to assume more responsibility for their own defense. Um, And more broadly, uh, threats by themselves aren't likely to be terribly effective. Uh, You're likely to both alienate partners uh, and engender a lot of resentment, Um, but moreover, uh, pressure is most likely to be successful if allies believe that you won't withdraw if they do. Uh, if they do, um, uh, if they do what you want them to do. Uh, Thomas Schelling, for example, famously argued that uh, you know, stop or I'll shoot is only an effective uh, coercive threat if the target believes that if they do stop, you won't shoot anyway. Uh, and the the third and final implication is that. External threat is no guarantee of success in terms of burden sharing, because on the one hand, allies that perceive uh, greater levels of threat are, are are likely to be susceptible to, to U.S. burden sharing pressure. Uh, but on the opposite side of the coin, U.S. perception of threat undermines uh, U.S. Uh, uh, U.S. ability to, to secure greater sh- burden sharing. Um, and so, you know, uh, These two things are often quite hard to disentangle, and so it shouldn't be a surprise in a lot of cases that the sheer, the simple presence of a threat isn't enough to 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 make allies um, uh, more susceptible to U.S. pressure. It has to be that they they fear it more than the U.S. does. Uh, And so I'll I think I'll I'll cut. The talk short here um, happy to talk about uh, avenues for future research uh, in in the Q and a uh, but I think that there's uh, plenty more to be to be done here um, but uh, but but with that i'll uh, I think i'll I'll open things up for for the question and answer so uh, thank you for for coming to the to the talk and uh, looking forward to to the discussion.
0: All right, thank you, dr. Blankenship. Uh, So now we're going to go ahead and begin the Q&A portion of the team session. Um, If you have a question, feel free to keep submitting those in the live event Q&A chat. Um, So our first question comes from Wing Commander Jean Christophe uh, Oudre, and he's from the French Air Force. And this question is, burden sharing is closely linked with alliance effectiveness. The more the alliance would be perceived by allies as efficient, the more likely they'd be eager to share the burden. How do you analyze the nato non-action and ukraine events in 2014 isn't it already the threat a threat of abandonment
1: yeah so uh, on the issue uh, of of ukraine in particular um i think that that's a good example and i I think you, you you sort of see this in in the baltic states in particular um where um we're really this has this has been a, a sort of galvanizing event and, and really series of events uh, for burden sharing in in the NATO alliance, um, and and you've really seen in particular the you know, the three Baltic states as well as as well as Poland, um, in particular really uh, really really stepping up their uh, you know their their contributions to the alliance. Um, We've also seen in 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 uh, other areas of the alliance as well, of course. Um, you know, um, from the U.S., you've seen it in in terms of the uh, European Reassurance Now Deterrence Initiative. Uh, you've seen it in a variety of uh, NATO uh, NATO initiatives, like the uh, Enhanced Forward Presence and the and, and the the, the uh, very uh, high readiness Joint Task Force. And so, yeah, I, I think you could I think you could um, you could Portray, I think, the, um, the events in in Ukraine and, and even before that in in Georgia as uh, sort of uh, events that really set in motion the the burden sharing conversation in in a way that they, that they hadn't been previously. Um, even here, though, I, I think you can you can see you can still see some uh, you can see the influence of geography in terms of the Relative contributions across the alliance, uh, and so, you know, you, you really see especially the the frontline states uh, really assuming a a, a a relatively high proportion, or uh, investing in a relatively high proportion of uh, of GDP on defense, for example, um, whereas countries that are, are a bit further away, uh, including Germany and, and others. Uh, n- not spending quite as much uh not to say that there aren't exceptions um britain france uh two 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 major exam uh uh, uh exceptions to the, to this rule but but i think even even here you can see the you can see the influence of, of geography
0: all right thank you um, our next question is from Steve Schenkel, and this question is, can you, apply, can you discuss your, how your research would apply to China and Russia with regards to allies? Does the CTSO, um, CSTO, fit in with your research um, on the Russian and China, Chinese alliance in the future?
1: Yeah, so th- this, this is a fascinating question. Um, and you know, I, I've always wanted to do a um, sort of comparative study of burden sharing in uh, in U.S. alliances to to say asymmetric alliances uh, led by Russia, Russia, or or, or the Soviet Union, even uh, and, and China. Um, and what's interesting about um, about uh, say the, the CSTO or, or, or other uh, other Russian alliances is that um you know if you look at countries that that um, you know countries that are included in and in say for example data sets of, uh, of of alliances uh, you know R- Russian alliances often curiously overlap with uh, depending on how they're coded with, with US alliances in, in Eastern Europe and, uh, and and elsewhere and you know uh, there are some states included who, who are, who are nominally russian allies that that i think would would probably say that russia is is their uh is their um major is the major threat they perceive as well and um and so yeah it it's sort of difficult to say because you know u s alliances I, I think are are somewhat distinctive in that they uh for one are um are highly highly voluntary uh whereas for example say during the, the cold war uh soviet alliances were, were were largely coercive in nature though that's not to say uh you know there wasn't uh voluntary membership is uh, some degree of, of volunteerism as well um and and the other thing that makes u.s alliances i think somewhat unique is that um the u.s is is just so much further away from its allies and so these issues of, of credibility sort of inevitably rear their head because simply because uh the u s is located you know so many thousands of miles away, and so the possibility that the u s could 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 abandon allies uh, is more is more is easier to imagine um, than say uh you know uh China abandoning North Korea or uh, the soviet union or russia abandoning uh, its alliances simply because of of geographic proximity right uh, russia can't uh, extricate itself from its borders and, and neither can china uh, whereas the us is is a western hemisphere uh, hemispheric power that happens to have far-flung commitments elsewhere and so the issues of credibility are i think take on um, a sort of unique dimension in U.S. alliances that, that, that's not necessarily the case in, in other alliances. But it, it's, it's a great question, though. Um, and I, I don't necessarily know that I, I have a solid answer, but, but it, it's something that I, I've been interested in, in thinking about more.
0: All right. Thank you, Dr. Blankenship. Um, our next question is from Kirk Otterson at L A M L. And he and he asks. Some analysts have posited that the two percent of GDP metric isn't really a good measure of alliance burden sharing. In short, it's a blunt instrument that doesn't help get at what a country is spending on defense, Its defense dollars on. Any comments on this notion based on your research?
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I think this is. I think this is quite right. Um, and you know, I, I uh, I'll go back a slide, and I, I think that one. One really fruitful area of, of research that I think uh, sh- could and should be done is um, to to sort of make sort of really do a more fine grained research on on burden sharing because um, I think very much to your point uh, percentage of GDP metrics are are very blunt measures um, they're they're useful uh, they're useful. Especially for, for for just a simple quantitative comparison, but they don't they don't tell you much about what's happening under the hood, um, and and so I think for that reason, um, you know, in in the quantitative portion portion of my research, I look mainly at military spending because uh, it's something that, that's easy enough to measure. Um, but uh, yeah, in in the qualitative portions of my research, uh, you know, you you really see just how just how just how much variety is um is subsumed under these general percentage of gdp targets um, and 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 so yeah i i don't um I, I don't really have anything to um i don't really have have much to add beyond i think the the point that was raised in, in the question which is that th- these are definitely uh rather blunt measures of burden sharing um and i think more work should be done um, to to really look at burden sharing through through a more micro level lens that that really tries to to, to study um, you know how how countries for example can specialize in specific capabilities right so I, I know there's uh, good work being done um, by uh, by, uh, by by some folks um, in in uh, in academia right now that that's looking at um this issue of specialization uh for example um and i think i think that that work is is quite valuable in um in getting us to um to to more fine-grained understanding of of burden sharing
0: so also related to this two percent um gdp metric or threshold uh we have a person that is asking um Is there a potential to view burden sharing from a larger view, like infrastructure projects such as railways, roads, ports, uh, to the other components that support major conflicts as industry to be considered against the 2% threshold?
1: Yeah, um, definitely. um, And I think especially since the... um, I mean, certainly during the Cold War as well, but I think especially since the end of the Cold War um, in NATO in particular, um, there's been kind of a a broadening of the menu of of what's on the table in terms of burden sharing. So, you know, uh, in the 1990s, 2000s, for example, there um, really weren't many Conventional threats in the way the Soviet Union posed on the horizon, and so you know, NATO increasingly looked toward uh, out-of-area operations, uh, for example, in in Afghanistan, um, and in peacekeeping operations uh, in in Europe and and elsewhere. Um, and I, I think definitely that um, I think this this speaks to the the, the previous point as well that um, that you know. Um, I don't necessarily know that you can study. I mean, I think what I'm doing in my research is specifically looking at burden sharing in terms of um, res- allies assuming responsibility for their own defense. But that's by no means the the only metric that, that's, that's relevant. Um, uh, you know, a number of NATO partners, for example, would argue that they they punch well over their weight in terms of peacekeeping uh, uh, peacekeeping contributions in terms of foreign aid, um, and and there have been uh, others. I, I think I alluded to the the Baltic states that uh, and Poland as well that um, were, were were among some of the larger contributors to uh, to the, the coalition of the willing in, in Iraq, um, and. Yeah, I, 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 would, I guess I would just add that, um, that that's somewhat beyond the scope of, of my own research. And, and I think more could and should be done to uh, try and tease out these alternative forms of burden sharing and see if, uh, for example, the, that's the explanation for, for conventional military burden sharing that I have uh, laid out here applies to uh, burden sharing in, in other domains as well.
0: All right, thank you. Um, Our next question is from the Director of SMA, Mr. Todd Beasy, and his question is, I think that we can all agree that all capabilities are not equal and that that in that kind or type of capability investment matters greatly, particularly when uh, executing combined military operations on a modern battlefield or even humanitarian assistance missions. As we look to incentivize burden sharing, how do we foster the type of cooperation that allows for smart and mutually supportive investments
1: yeah, so I think the one of the one of the major takeaways I would highlight from from my own research um, on the topic is that um you know, there are sometimes these debates about, uh, debates between, you know, should the U.S. reassure its allies, should it not, uh, should it care about credibility, should it not, is, um, you know, uh, do, you know do, do assurances of support uh, you know, remove allies incentives for, for burden sharing, do they not? And I, I think that, you know, that I think I think the the better and the better way of framing the issue is that both are required, right? So you know the um, you know a, as in any partnership, uh, your partners need to know that um, you know that, that you're on board, right? That you're um, you're not going to to leave the partnership, um, but that doesn't mean there's not scope for um, for 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 sometimes hard bargaining. Um, and in terms of um in terms of in terms of deploying specialized capabilities in particular, um I think it behooves the United States, you know, if if the goal if the goal was simply to pass off responsibility for defense to to allies and say, you've got this all on your own, um, you know, we're we're not going to help, um, then then yes, then certainly, you know, uh a major retrenchment i think would be would be you know uh would be compatible with that if your goal is instead to um to incentivize allies to specialize in certain capabilities to um you know to to really have a division of labor in the alliance then uh they're only likely to do that if they know that that you're going to to be there as well right and so there has to be um you know, there there has to be a, a mutual negotiation to, to to reach that point, point. Um, and you know, often easier said than done, right? You know, the, these things often re- require you know a, a very deft use of, uh, of 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 assurances and pressure, um, but I, I don't think that a a major retrenchment, for example, is is, is the way you get to. Um, for example, a, a more integrated, uh, a more specialized alliance. I think that that's more how you get to uh, duplication in the alliance is is by saying you're on your own. Uh, you know, w- w- we're not helping you. So, um, yeah. But I, I think it, it, it's a good question. And uh, you know, if, if there's if there's a running theme in, in a lot of my answers to these questions, it's that uh, I think a lot of uh, I think more research is is needed on on a lot of these finer grained Questions about about specialized capabilities in in, in integration in, in alliances.
0: All right, thank you, Dr. Blankenship. Um, our next question is from Matthew at DENS, and his question is: With the fall of the Soviet Union, the existential threat that at European borders has all but disappeared. This has left mostly exp- uh, expedi sorry, expedient. Expedi- into- sorry i can't pronounce that word complex across the middle east aimed at the heading off the threat of terrorism and to maintain energy security which many european nations are more reluctant to become involved in how will this affect america's ability to push a burden sharing philosophy in western europe and should we expect a shift in focus to middle eastern allies
1: yeah it's it's a good question and in in a lot of ways the you know the challenge um of the the challenge of the post-cold war environment i i think somewhat more so than the the cold war environment has been the diversity in threat perceptions across regions right so there's no longer a sort of overarching threat sort of holding u.s alliances together um and there's even variation uh within within regions so in uh, you know, in in Europe, for example, there is, you know, there's some daylight between uh, the concerns of, of, say, the Estonians uh, who, who are uh, much more worried about uh, about Russia, and those in uh, in southern Europe who, who are who are more concerned about about terrorism uh, and, and about about uh, about issues of um, of immigration, um, and and so you know. Uh, getting a cohesive response out of these sort of differing, uh, differing priorities is, is quite difficult. And, you know, in, in the past few years, um, you, you've sort of seen some debate about, you know, uh, and, and this isn't the Middle East in particular, but um, about, you know, what exactly is the role of Europe in, say, competition with China? Uh, right, and it's not entirely clear um, because there's certainly some concerns about China, um, but they're they're less sort of hard security and more um, sort of uh, issues of um, of espionage, um, more issues of trade. Um, whereas allies in East Asia, of course, are are um, are, are more concerned with with China's hard power, um, and so you know um in in some sense um you know one could expect that if there was a a sort of large overarching if a large overarching threat did emerge um if say you had a um you know a a more uh a, a chinese russian alliance for example that that, that was quite cohesive uh, you might begin to see um, sorts of dynamics emerge, as, as he did during the Cold War, where uh, most US allies really turned their eye toward the same thing. Uh, but, but short of that, you, I think you're, you're likely to see uh, sort of some allies prioritize some issues in the alliance more than others, right? So um, those in Southern Europe are, are, are likely to be more concerned about what's happening in the Middle East than those in Northeastern Europe who are more concerned with, uh, with, with Russia. Um, but, yeah, I, I think it's it's one of the challenges of alliance management that, that the U.S. has faced in, in the post-Cold Cold War environment uh, in, in particular.
0: All right. Thank you. Our, our next question is from Eric Gertzke from UCSV, and his question is, can you talk a bit more about scope and scale? Uh, grants grad- Grant strategy refers to regional, or with regards to grant strategy, regional threats may be more important to protégé than the U.S., leading to different emphasis. Also, U.S. concern may be about security or stability, while the ally cares about the distribution of stakes in in the other bargaining game, uh, that with challengers. Do you have any comments regarding that?
1: Yeah, so so this is a good question and uh, a good series of questions and um with regards to the first on um on on regional threats um yeah this is something that i I, i've wrestled with in in terms of uh in terms of 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 the of the project because um you know in in a lot of ways i think you can i think uh, as um as was mentioned um, you can imagine that there are going to be some adversaries that that the ally uh, cares more about than than the US does and, and, and perhaps vice versa as well um, and you know uh, I, I haven't really I've in in the research I've most I've mostly focused on sort of the effects of, of shared threat um, in part because um, sort of measuring um, the, measuring the degree of non share threat is is uh, is something I, I've I found sort of tricky to do, um, but in principle, I, I think you know what you'd be likely to see is that you know uh, if an ally, for example, perceives an adversary that doesn't share with the U.S., then um, it could be more susceptible to U.S. pressure than than those that don't, um, and I, I think you could, for example. Um explain uh, the the participation of uh, of the Baltic states, uh, for example in in Iraq in in 2003 as being a sort of um, a sort of preemptive uh, or, or I suppose preventive attempt to try and um, really kind of gain favor and um, you know establish a reputation as as an important and loyal ally um you know if if Russia ever came knocking on the door um you know during the early two thousands russia wasn't as much on on the u s radar uh, as it has become over the last decade or so um, and, and so yeah yeah I, I think the i think the theory could be extended to to explain variation on uh on those grounds um, that um that you're likely to see allies that allies that face threats that the u.s doesn't share to be more susceptible uh and allies that don't share u.s perception of threat to be less susceptible so if if you're an ally that is uh bordering a u.s adversary but you don't really care that much about that adversary you're not that worried then you're likely to not be terribly um you're not likely to be terribly um uh, likely to, to respond if the u.s asks you to to assume responsibility for a threat that you don't really yourself care that much about um, and and I'm sorry could you repeat the the second part of, uh, of the question I, I think i I don't think I, I wrote that down fast enough
0: um, yeah so he says also us concern may be about security and stability while the ally cares about the distribution of stakes in the other bar, in the other bargaining game uh, that was challengers.
1: That's interesting um i didn't really i, I have to think more about that to, to to i think provide a a good answer um, i think yeah in 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 principle i mean that that's that that, so, that that certainly sounds quite plausible to me um that that there's likely to be some asymmetry in terms of the um, the perception the, the perception of the stakes right that if if you're the u s you're probably more likely to be preoccupied with um, maintaining the status quo um, than than an ally that might want to potentially revise the status quo, or um, or, or a minimum to um, you know to to, uh, uh, to gain bargaining leverage vis-a-vis its adversaries in in crisis disputes or or, or just in uh, in, in negotiations, more more broadly, but yeah, I I'd have to think more about that and, and how that how that might how the theory might um, might map onto that, and incorporate that. But I, I think it's a good question.
0: All right, thank you. Um, so our speaker has granted us a few extra minutes to to go over. Um, so we will take those few extra minutes to address our last question, uh, which also comes from Mr. Todd Beasy. And this question is: Over the years, leaders of allied countries have sometimes started openly discussing the assertion of their national sovereignty by proposing uh, coming out from under the U.S. security umbrella and building military independence. Japan and most recently France come to mind. Have you been? Have you been following these initiatives, and how do they fit into the framework of your research?
1: Yeah. So um, I, I've been. I have been following them, and. You know, part of the part of the project that that I didn't I didn't, uh, I, I didn't in, incorporate into today's talk, um, but that is is part of my uh, sort of uh, broader project is um, on the subject of when the U.S. actually is when the U.S. actually desires its allies to assume more responsibility for, for their own defense, and it's not always obvious that um that that it that it wants them to uh and in, in particular I, I think the the examples that um that, that were brought up um i think are, are 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 good ones because you know part of the part of the argument i make elsewhere in the project is that um the the larger allies become um they simultaneously become more tempting targets for burden sharing, right, insofar as they can relieve the U.S. of its burdens. Uh, but they also become more risky targets because, um, you know, the, the more latent power the ally has at its disposal um, and uh, the, the more the easier it would be for that ally to essentially go its own way um as uh, you know as uh, as as was mentioned and so there's a very delicate balancing act and in a lot of cases um both I think historically and, and uh, in in and, in and contemporary um there's been some reluctance to um uh you know, in principle everyone allied burden sharing is is no- brainer right you know, who doesn't want um, who doesn't want to share uh share the cost of the alliance and, uh, and, and 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 save some resources but um that that's also likely to come with allies wanting more say in how they use those capabilities um and and you know uh in the past several years for example you, you've seen this in uh in the european context where uh in principle uh the trump administration has been quite um quite in favor of of more nato burden sharing, but um but when when it uh but what when it seemed like that might take the form of um of of sort of uh separate eu ventures um uh whether in in terms of procurement or in terms of um you know on the extreme end of the spectrum uh european army um suddenly you know that that begins to um you know it begins to look a little less attractive because that that's something that um that could uh could be autonomous from the US and it could duplicate NATO it couldn't uh could make NATO less relevant if if the EU or some combination of of EU states have have their own venture that um that sort of allows them to become uh more autonomous from the US um and so you know th- in the end at the end of the day there, there's not a there's not this is this is a, a fundamental dilemma in in u.s alliances this sort of dilemma between um, what i call control versus cost sharing um, uh, but and it's one that i think uh, u.s policymakers have historically um managed by by generally treading uh, fairly lightly in in some cases um Though you know some allies are more capable of of this sort of going their own way than others, um, and and in those cases, um, you know, uh, if an ally is really dependent on U.S. protection, then encouraging them to to really step up their their burden sharing efforts uh, isn't that risky. Um, but but the larger they get, um, and, and the more um, the more self the more potentially self reliant they are, the, the riskier it becomes. So I, I think this is. Um, this is something that us policymakers that I think will, will continue to uh, to, uh, to grapple with over over the coming years
0: All right, thank you, Dr. Blankenship. Um, so that brings us to the end of today's speaker session. so I'd like to thank everyone again for uh, tuning in and thank you, Dr. Brian Blankenship for taking the time to present today.
1: Yeah, thank you everyone for coming uh, this this was This was a lot of fun, and um, I got uh, got a lot of um, of material to to think about here.
0: All right, thanks so much.